Wonderful to worship uh, with you today, just to welcome the presence of the Lord. Um, I don't know if you sensed this, but like as we started worshiping, I, I kind of felt like we were a little timid, you know, sort of like sometimes you kind of, you know, it just takes you a while to kind of warm up, but then the Lord kind of started meeting us and, and kind of calling some worship out of us in some sweet ways today. So thank you, team, for leading us so beautifully. Um, Last week, we talked a little bit about the relational dynamic of discipleship. So if you were with us, we were talking about that. And then um, on the weekend, I got a text from some of our leaders who are visiting a, a couple that has been a part of this church for a long, long time. Uh, Dutch and Leah Fry, they're very good friends. And uh, Dutch has been battling cancer. He's been going through a, a pretty rough road. And specifically, though, they said uh, on Sunday... Uh, would you be willing just to send some greetings from, from Dutch and Leah? Because they really want to thank the church for the way that the, the prayers uh, of the people have, have really supported them and so many people that have just encouraged them uh, in this difficult journey that they have been on. And uh, I thought, man, what a great living example that is of just the relational dynamic of discipleship, that God has given us the body of Christ to do this thing together and to grow together, and, and Dutch and Leah will forever be, uh, in my opinion, some of the most joyful, faith-filled people that I have ever known. They have been part of this church for decades, and they have made an impact on this world and countless lives. Uh, their story is a beautiful, beautiful story that God's continuing to write, but in this time of need, they asked if we could just pass that on and continue to encourage you to pray for Dutch and Leah Fry. Some of you know them well. Uh, we started uh, this series called Reset in January, and we've got just this week and next week, and then we're going to be done with it. This, uh, this month of February, we've been focusing on the idea of discipleship. So Proverbs 3, my child, do not reject the Lord's discipline, and don't be upset when he corrects you. This idea that we are growing as disciples in Christ. And we started looking at what Jesus said about that the first week, talking about who do you say that I am. That's what he asked his very own disciples. Who do you say that I am? In other words, making that a very personal part of the journey. Jesus uh, said to his disciples, Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so we've been sort of talking about the implications of that over these last few weeks, and we put this kind of grid before you to talk about discipleship not only being personal, uh, and then this last week we talked about it being relational, the dynamics that we have as we grow together within the body of Christ, each one of us having gifts that we bring in. Uh, you're not the Holy Spirit, you're not the, you're not the head of the church, but you have a part to play within the body of Christ. And so we all do that. There's this re relational dynamic. Today, I want to go to this third one, which is that our discipleship is transformational. That there is something in this process that we are being changed from glory to glory. And some of you would say, well, of course. I mean, discipleship has to be transformational. But the fact of the matter is, we need to talk about it because for a lot of us, that's not been our experience. Right, you go through the motions of doing the right stuff or the checklist or you show up in the right places, you do the right activities, but are you changing at a deep level? And even today we'll begin to touch on a little bit, like how does that actually happen? How do we actually change to become more Christ-like? 
Next week, we're going to wrap up this whole thing with uh, our last one, discipleship, that is missional. So God doesn't just change us to change us, but then he puts us on mission in the world that he loves. And we're going to hear just a little bit about Jesus' heart for that world, even in today's message. Matthew 9 is where we're going to begin. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there. Uh, While you're doing that, uh, Matthew 9, uh, let, let me just sort of begin with this idea uh, that I think is very true. We are changing all the time. Even those of us who are stubborn and say, well, I don't like change. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, you're changing all the time. Uh, there are things for better, there are things for worse, but you are rarely in a place where you would just say, I'm exactly the same as I've always been. Uh, on a negative side, I would say, I think I'm maybe getting more forgetful, which is not great because I was already a little forgetful to begin with. Uh, this last week, I had to drop a car off at the, at the mechanic, and so uh, Grant basically we drove two cars over, and he gave me a ride to work. So I, I lock my car, and I take my key, and I put it in the key slot. You know how you do. They haven't even opened up the mechanic's office yet. I get to my office, and then I realize I have left my bag with my computer and all my work stuff locked in the car. And I would go get it, but I've taken the key, and I've put it through the key slot, so now I've got to kind of wait and wait around and stuff. So I go, and I, later after they open, because they weren't open at this time, it was a little bit early, uh, I go, and I'm explaining, and I said, yeah, I'm probably not your smartest uh, customer here today. And the, the head mechanic guy who owns the shop, he hears me explaining this to the, to the receptionist that I need to get this, and he comes out, and he says, Aaron, don't worry, senility has an acquired taste. I was like, well, thank you. Not only does he fix my car, but gives me nice little fun jabs as well. Uh, What are you becoming is the question. You are not just staying the same. And your bathroom scale or your bank account or your library or your habits are all telling that story. You are in the process of becoming something. The critical question, especially for the person who would say, I'm a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, is what are you becoming? And that was a question that really shook me when I was about 19 years old because I realized as I looked in the mirror that the person that I was becoming was not a person I was proud of. And, and it was deeper than that because I, I began to have this nagging fear that I, I couldn't actually fix the person in the mirror or what he was becoming. And sometimes God brings you to that place, and it actually leads you to a real place of transformation, which is the theme we're talking about today. How does our discipleship transform us? And we actually find that God is really good at that. So if our discipleship is not changing us, something's got to be wrong. We, we continue to grow. We continue to be changed as we grow in Christ. And, and I'm particularly burdened when I say this because there's a, there's a point in time where you stop hitting those age-related milestones. You know what I'm talking about? You're a little kid, there's like age-related milestones all the time, and you go to school, and you learn to do this, and you learn to ride a bike, and you learn, all this kind of stuff. You learn to read, and then you get a little bit older, and you learn to drive a car, and then you're old enough to vote, or you, all of these kind of things, legal adulthood. Uh, but there's a point sort of in your 20s where like people, is just you're just old now. You know what I mean? You stop thinking about milestones in your life, and, and maybe, maybe you get married, or maybe you've got, finished college or whatever, but those milestones kind of peter off, and the challenge is when you don't have those milestones to keep you anchored for like, where's the direction of my life going, as we get older, we've got to ask ourselves the question, am I still growing as a disciple in Christ? Am I still being transformed, and am I still making space for Jesus to transform me. How many of you still got some growing to do? Raise a hand if you still got some growing to do. Good. 
That's that. And we're in good company. This message is just for you. Okay. So Matthew 9 uh, takes us into this place. We're going to get an inside look uh, at the life of Matthew. We've been doing all of these uh, particular recent messages from the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to sort of get a glimpse of a transformational moment in the life of Matthew, who would become one of Jesus' disciples. We also get an inside look at the heart of Jesus, who has transformation on his mind when he looks at the brokenness of the world. So it's easy for us, again, if we're, if we're not making space and letting the Lord go and kind of being in touch with his heart, it's easy for us to look at the brokenness in the world and say, man, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. And so we look very critically at the world. Jesus looked at the same brokenness and actually had compassion, and we actually get a glimpse of kind of his mission come across in this passage. So read with me in Matthew 9, and we're going to just look at a couple points here uh, with this in the calling of Matthew. Matthew 9, uh, verses 9 and following. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he's now begun his earthly ministry and moving about, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. That was his profession. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Verse 10, when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, verse 12, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. May God have blessing to the reading of his word here today. It's a simple passage. Um, you could read it on sort of a face value and, and sort of understand it sort of quickly. Here's Matthew. He's sitting at his booth. He's doing his job, literally. He encounters Jesus. Jesus encounters him. Jesus calls him to be a disciple, and he goes. And then there's this interaction where people are trying to understand, well, why is Jesus hanging around with these sinful people? And then Jesus reveals a bit of his heart and mission and says, no, I didn't come uh, for healthy people. I came for sick people. Uh, which is a very interesting metaphor that he would choose because we do believe that Jesus is our healer, but he's obviously speaking metaphorically. The people at that party, as far as we know, were not sick. But he said, I, I didn't come for righteous people. I came for unrighteous people. So we're going to get a little bit of a clue into this as well. I, I wonder maybe, did Matthew have any idea that this was going to be a big day for him, <laughs> you know? As far as, as far as we know, and as far as we know that he knew, he was just going to work and he was just going through his regular routines when an encounter with Jesus actually became a transformative moment for him. And that gives me a little bit of encouragement because in the, in the routines of life and all the things, you, you don't know, maybe today God has something transformative that he wants to do in your life. Our job is to make space to see what he wants to do. We talked about discipleship through this lens of being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus does. A pastor colleague of mine, that's what they talk about at their church. You know, we're going to be with Jesus and become like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus does. In, in the passage in Matthew 16 that we started in, Jesus talked about what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. So we've been kind of building around those things. So does Matthew have any idea what he is being called into. Uh, 
when Jesus says, follow me. Today's the day. I'm picking you. Let's go. Three things that I want you to see that Jesus does in this passage, all of them, again, very simple, but I think having some profound thoughts for us. Uh, The first one is that Jesus sees him, and it actually says that specifically in the passage. It doesn't just say, hey, they, they ran into each other, whatever, but it says that Jesus went from there. He saw a man named Matthew, and I, I want to tell you why I think that's important. Uh, we started this series talking about the personal nature of discipleship. So if we're going to wrestle with the personal nature of discipleship and questions like the one Jesus asked his own disciples, which is, who do you say that I am? That's a very personal kind of place, right? So if we're going to wrestle with that and we're going to deal with that, then we've got to sort of understand this personal nature of discipleship. Does Jesus see you is actually a transformative starting point. Does Jesus see you? And by that, not just simply does he see you, but does he know the circumstances that you're dealing with? It seems to me that when I'm at those low points or weak points in my faith, that the enemy is very quick to whisper in my ear, God doesn't see you. God doesn't know what's going on. He's, he's forgotten you. And maybe he's not even that overt with the accusation, but that's how it feels when you're in that place of low faith and you're in that place where your faith is really struggling. Essentially what you're asking is, does Jesus even see? And if he does see, does he even care? Does God know what I'm dealing with? Jesus saw Matthew. The enemy's going to attack this. You're forgotten. I remember talking to a young man several years ago, and I knew that he had some faith in his background. So he was talking kind of through his journey and the stuff he was going through. And he's kind of a mess and he was struggling with a lot of things. And I said, well, what do you think God sees in that? It's a hard, some hard situations that you're going through. How do, how do you think God feels about that? Or what do you think God sees in that? And this is what he said to me. He said, you know, and he wasn't hostile. He was just kind of raw. And he said, here's the thing about God. I've really come to find him to be more of a distant stepfather figure than anything else. He's being pretty real about what he was feeling in that time. What he was essentially saying is, I'm not sure that God really sees me. And if he does, I'm not really sure that God cares. So if you are in a place today that the discipleship path is actually a path that you are on, and you are saying, I'm going after this thing, and it is personal, and it is relational, re- relational, it is also going to be transformative, but I think it's not going to be transformative if you don't believe that Jesus sees you. Jesus saw Matthew at the booth. We don't know what his state exactly was. We don't know what he was wrestling with. I think Jesus did, but we don't know from reading it from this kind of perspective, what was Matthew actually feeling? Was he feeling restless? Was he feeling spiritual hunger? Was there something rising up in him that was maybe causing him to say, there's got to be more to live for than what I'm living for. And now here comes Jesus. Oftentimes, Jesus does that. He stirs up a hunger in you. You might even be here today, and you're wrestling with this question, of, is there something more to live for? And Jesus comes in that moment, and then all of a sudden you find the answer to the question you didn't even know you were asking. We don't know that that was part of Matthew's story. We do know Jesus saw him. 
We do know that Jesus saw James and John and Peter and Andrew when they were at their fishing nets. We do know that Jesus saw Nathanael underneath the fig tree, and we don't know what was going on under the fig tree, but when Jesus told him that, do you remember this story? When Jesus said, no, I, I know, he said, how do, you, how, how do you know who I am? Well, who's, what's going on? And Jesus says, I know who you are. I knew who you were back when you were under the fig tree. And we don't know what crisis he was dealing with or questions he was wrestling with or what moment he was going through, but all of a sudden that that spoke to his heart that here was somebody who sees me. So I'm just making the argument to you today that transformative discipleship begins when we understand that Jesus sees us. I'm just going to touch on this real quickly, but there's this tension. See, if you don't believe that Jesus sees you, then Romans 8.28 means almost nothing. Uh, Romans 8.28, we quote this a lot, um, throw it around a lot, sometimes maybe even too tritely. But, you know, it says, and, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And usually somebody, very well-meaning, sort of throws that out right in the middle of your crisis. And you're like, well, at least, you know, God loves you and is working all of this. <laughs> like, it's not making me feel really good in this moment. But if you believe that Jesus sees you, then that truth can actually have some hooks to hang on. It's very interesting. There's this tension with Romans 8 because Romans 8.28 reads just as we did just a moment ago. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Two verses before, Paul says this. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When your faith is at your low, low point, when you're wondering, does Jesus even see? We know in those moments, the, the, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And here's how he describes it. He says, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now, just, again, just think about this for a moment. If Jesus sees you, and if there are times in your life where you're so overwhelmed by the circumstances or the, the severity of the thing that you are encountering that you would say, I don't even know how to pray about this. How many of you have been in that place? Right? If, you have, if you're not there now and haven't been there, you probably will be at some point. This is part of the journey. You will find circumstances that are bigger than you and you say, I don't even know how to pray for this thing. Welcome to ministry. I find this all the time. I deal with people and their challenges and their messes. I go, Lord, I don't even know how to pray. But I've come to find some great joy in this. If Jesus, in fact, sees us, and here's the truth that comes out in 26, in those moments when you're saying, I don't even know how to pray, that the Spirit himself is interceding for you, and your translation may say this, with groans that are too deep for words. I take some encouragement from that. Because we have a God who sees us. First thing we see with Matthew, Jesus sees him. Second thing we see is this, Jesus calls him. And it's very simple. Follow me, he told him. Matthew gets up and he follows him. Friends, let me encourage you this with this. Discipleship that transforms us requires a divine initiative. So Matthew did not simply decide, you know what, today is the day I'm just going to become a Jesus follower. Jesus had to call to him. Some of you have already put your faith in Jesus Christ. You say, I'm walking it out, I'm living it out for Jesus Christ. You didn't simply decide to follow Jesus. You responded to the divine call. 
Matthew responds to the divine call. And he's making up his mind now to follow Jesus after he hears the voice of the call on his life. And as soon as this call happens, the transformation begins. In fact, this is part of the way that you know that you've heard the call of the voice of the Savior, is that transformation begins to happen. Matthew leaves the booth. This is a vocational change. This was a big sacrifice that he's making, but he's saying, I'm going to leave this behind so that I can be a disciple of Christ. Matthew begins to influence his world. It's what we call the Matthew party. He brings people together who are like him. He's got tax collector friends and other pagans and sinners. He says, you've got to come together and find Jesus. And though this particular passage does not overtly say that he did it for that reason, there's a parallel passage to this in Luke. And in Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, it basically says yeah, he threw the party for Jesus. And he said, I'm going to bring some people together so that they can see who he is. So Matthew begins to influence his world. Matthew party. Matthew begins to see people just like him who need Jesus too. Uh, All of this is true. Jesus calls. Matthew is responding. But here's the thing that strikes me when I read this passage of his calling. I wonder if he had any idea how extensive the call was going to be how much it would require of him to say yes and to continue to say yes to Jesus. When Jesus sees, we are seen. When Jesus calls, we then respond. And then, this is interesting to me, that when Jesus works, the work then is opposed. So now Jesus is mingling with these people, and it says that the Pharisees, if you look at verses, uh, verse 11, the Pharisees saw this and they begin to ask his disciples, why is he hanging out with sinners? Why is he doing that? I'm kind of curious, like who invited them and their opinion to the party? I don't, it doesn't say. I doubt they were there because why would they be hanging out with sinners and then accusing Jesus? But they see that Jesus is doing this and they're just, ugh, they're kind of ruffled by it. This is a religious spirit that is standing in the way, the redemptive and transformative work of Jesus. But it's also going to reveal something about Jesus' calling. So the religious leaders, they're kind of skeptical. Jesus' answer is very, uh, is very reassuring and very revealing. And this is our last point we're going to talk about today. Jesus restores. It says in verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. This is a reference to Hosea 6.6, which goes on to say, I don't desire sacrifice, but an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. So the religious spirit is missing the redemptive work of God happening right in front of them. Jesus is in their midst. God is on the move, and he's saying, I didn't come to, to, to hang out with healthy people. The people who need a doctor are the sick ones. Jesus loves to restore And this takes us to our last comment. It's like the process of transformation. And the question that I ask is, how does that actually happen? You know, the idea that Jesus loves me where I am, but he loves me too much to let me stay there, and that over time, and especially as I look back in my past, I begin to see the places that God has actually changed the course of, of my direction but how does it actually happen if you're growing in Christ today how did you get there 
If you're, if you're more grounded in Christ today than you used to be, how did you get there? What did God do to do this transformative work? And, and here's what I would say. I'm, I'm just going to give you a, a couple of thoughts on this, and, and we'll, we'll wrap up today. Um, the early church father, Augustine, he talked about the need for reordering of our loves. So he, he said, basically, when, when you come into a relationship with Jesus, that Jesus begins to reorder the things that we love. We actually sang about this today. When, when, when you are here, it changes what we seek and what we see when we're in God's presence. That's a reordering of our loves. We see change happening through things like confession and repentance, which is essentially just bringing us into agreement with God's assessment of how we are and who we are and what we need. So those things change us for sure. Sometimes the the process of change is painful. Um, I I can do this uh, example sort of quickly, but this is several years ago. I was was talking to a friend of mine. He was in a really bad spot. He had kind of you know, gone through some pretty bad decisions and problems that he was wrestling with, and he was in a place, he was kind of looking in the mirror and saying, like, I, I don't know how to change. I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling. And uh, so we're in the middle of this conversation, and um, I had been reading this book called Emotionally Healthy Church by Peter Scazzaro. And in the book, uh, Scazzaro is, is referencing C.S. Lewis' Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and that was a children's book that I really enjoyed. I think some of our youth are actually been, have been reading the, you know, the Adventures in Narnia and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, this was like a big transformational moment, and I think it impacted me as much as it did him. And I, I'll just read you a couple lines here. If you're, if you're not familiar with the story, um, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about um, Eustace, who's a little punk of a kid, and Eustace is a little boy, but he becomes a big ugly dragon uh, as a consequence of being selfish and stubborn and unbelieving, and now he's kind of wrestling. He wants to become a little boy again, but he doesn't know how, and so he's stuck in his, in his sort of sinful state, if you will. And so they discover him as a little boy again, and he begins to tell the story of how he encounters Aslan, who is kind of the representative of, represents Jesus, he's the great lion, and how Aslan takes him aside and tells him that he's got to bathe in this pool to become a little boy again, but he's got to take, take this dragon skin off. And he even, this was really fascinating, C.S. Lewis included this, uh, that Eustace decides, he goes, oh, I, can rem- I remember I can shed my skin like a snake. And so he does. He kind of pulls off an outer layer, but he's still a dragon. So he does it again, and he's still a dragon. He does it a third time, he's still a dragon. And then he begins to feel really hopeless that how many skins is he going to have to peel off before he becomes a little boy again. And so I'm sharing this with my friend, and, and, and we, we just began weeping together as we thought about this, this imagery. And, and here's what C.S. Lewis goes on to say. He says, I was afraid of his claws, the lion. I can tell you that, but I was also pretty desperate by now because Aslan basically said to him, you need to let me do this. Like, I, I got to do it for you. I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty desperate by now, so I just lay down on my back and I just let him do it. And that first tear he made was so deep, I thought it went right through my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off and it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And he peeled that beastly stuff right off just as I thought I had done. That's what he writes. I thought I had done it. And he peeled it right off. Only when I did it, it really didn't hurt. 
And then there it was lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been, this dragon skin. And he goes, and then there I was, smooth and soft, and he caught hold of me, he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment, and then after that it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain was gone, and I saw why I had turned into a boy again. And after a while, the lion took me out and he dressed me with his paws in these new clothes that I'm wearing. See, C.S. Lewis described it really well that to go sort of the radically new direction at times is going to feel like God's claws are going so deep into us that they're cutting into our very heart. And there's these moments of deep transformation that God wants to do where we get real with who we are and what our deep needs are. And those happen, and we love when those things happen. It's painful, but it's good. But as I was thinking about the context of my life and many of the lives of the people that I know, I guess I would say this. How does Jesus restore us? Well, sometimes there are these huge pivotal moments, but oftentimes there's a simple process of growing. That word process has perhaps become the most pivotal and frequently used thought as I read scripture that I see because I read things like Philippians 1 3 that he who began a good work in you will be do you know what it says faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ what's that talking about it's process that means you're not done growing yet unless God has finished your race when we read passages like Romans 12 2 that we are to be renewed transformed by the renewing of our mind. That means that there's still work to be done in this sanctification process. And then I come to passages like this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Think about this in the context of the transformational nature of discipleship. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed. Right now, you are becoming something. That is the heart of transformational discipleship. Now here's the little catch. Some of you are going to go, yeah, but I don't feel like I'm becoming something. I don't feel any different today than I felt 10 minutes ago or yesterday or the day before. I was thinking about this like, well, then how do we actually change? And I thought about any of us who have raised kids. How many of you have raised kids? How many of you have watched kids grow up even if you didn't raise them, right? Most of us have. How many of you have had the experience where you just go, what the heck happened to that kid? All of a sudden, like, they're all grown up. That little girl became a, a woman. That little boy became a, a man. And how did it happen? And the fact of the matter is it happened in very slow, incremental, steady changes over time. This has recently happened where Grant got to run into an old friend of ours, family friend, and uh, Grant remembered him, and this guy had no idea who Grant was because last time he saw him, he was really little. And he says, hey, are you Carl? And he goes, and he goes uh, uh, yeah, who's asking? And, and uh, he goes, well, I'm, I'm Grant Henning. And, and he was like, oh, man, I feel so old. He's like, can't believe how old I feel. Because all of a sudden, what used to be this little tiny kid is, is this grown man. Incremental changes. I mentioned C.S. Lewis before. Let me just give you two quotes. Are you guys still hanging with me for just, just two more minutes? 
C.S. Lewis said this in The Weight of Glory. He said, do you know that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else they would be a horror of a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. He was a big believer in the, in the steady transforming power that happens in a person's life. Francis Frangipane, one of my favorite quotes, this is in my office, it says, God's goal is to create and establish functional Christ-likeness within us. We start with the name of Jesus, and it transfers to the nature of Jesus. Don't miss this, this is too good. We believe in Jesus until we believe like Jesus. We love Jesus until we're loving like Jesus. God's goal is nothing less than we become full-stature Christians. He is bringing us into the fullness of His beauty, His hope, and His love. Listen, the point that we're getting at in today's message is this. If your discipleship is not transforming you, something's wrong. Because Jesus loves and is able to transform you. And sometimes he does it in big steps, and sometimes he does it in small process of transformation, just like your kids that are growing up a little bit at a time. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here's Matthew. He's sitting at the booth. Jesus sees him. Jesus calls him, and Jesus starts that day doing a transforming work in him. Fast forward to the end of Matthew's life. He's a diehard disciple of Christ who will give his very life for the cause and for the kingdom. How did God transform him? One little bit at a time. So what I want to encourage us to do, worship team can come up. We're going to wrap up here. Um, but our theme, our, our prayer today is that we might just make some room for Jesus. I think maybe some of us, we would say like, you know, the fear is this. Well, I make room for Jesus and maybe he doesn't do anything big and dynamic in my life. Do you ever have that fear? You know, I put myself out there and pray or come to the altar or whatever and I, and I ask God to do something and maybe I don't see. Well, that's, that's the, you're making space for him that in his time and in his divine call, when the time's right, he's gonna continue to make incremental changes. You see, if we are a people that will continue to make room for the work of Jesus, we will find as we go through our life that Jesus has been doing transformational work all along. The danger is you can go a lot of weeks a lot of months, a lot of years, maybe a lot of decades without stopping to say, I'm making room for Jesus. Maybe there's something he wants to transform in me today, big or little. If you would receive that call, that is the message. Would you receive that call? To say, I'm gonna make some room for Jesus. As we worship in this last song, I wanna encourage you, you can right where you are, just say, I'm gonna build an altar and say, Lord, I'm making some room for you, I'm inviting the transforming work of the presence of Christ in my life. Some of you need to come forward because in a step of coming forward, we actually say, I'm, I'm kind of putting a stake in the ground. And there's that, that stepping forward in faith to say, I just need some time on the mercy seat. And so what I'm gonna ask you to do is I'm gonna ask you just to, to stand with me.
And as the worship team just begins to play a little bit, we're going we're gonna to look to the Lord. And God, we're going to simply say, we're making some room for you. We're making some room for you. That prayer that we started with today stood out to me such, in such a beautiful way. May this day bring Sabbath rest to my heart and my home. And many of us said, yes, Lord, amen. And, and he says, may God's image be restored in me. And my imagination in God be restored. Let God's image be restored in me. That's what we're talking about. The transformational discipleship path. If you are here today, never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, you hear the, the voice of Jesus saying, come follow me, that's kind of your first, your, first your first starting point. It's not the ending point. It's the point where we say, I bow my knee to the Lordship of Christ, I confess my sin before Him, I recognize it's His way, not my way, I put Him on the the throne of my life, he gets the centerpiece. I'm going to pursue his kingdom. I'm going to pursue him. That's discipleship. I'm going to pick up my cross, deny myself. I'm going to follow him. Uh, that's available to you today, right where you are. You make, make that prayer in your own words. Just begin to confess your need for the Lord. Cry out to him. Ask him to come into your heart and your life. That's the starting point. Here's the challenge. We keep thinking that's the end point, but it's the starting point. So if you've never gotten to the starting point, let today be the day of salvation. You say yes to Jesus. If you've said yes to Jesus, then simply acknowledge you're not done. The journey continues. One of the great joys that I have is to see people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And I see it right here in this church that say I am continuing to lean in to the work that Jesus is still finishing in me. What are they saying? I'm making some room. I'm making some space. So that's you today. You're just making some space for the Lord to do some work. Let him set the agenda. He's going to do what he wants to do. Uh, I, want to, I do want to call you uh, forward. I want you to just say, just start coming now. If that's you and you say, yeah, I'm, I'm making some space for Jesus today. Just come forward. You can sit on the front. You can kneel in the front. Just start making your way. Uh, I'm going to come forward. So I'm, you, can, you can join me there uh, if that's in your heart today. And make that your declaration to say, I'm going to make some room for Jesus. So don't wait. Someone's got to be first. Come on forward. Start, start coming. And then as our team uh, leads us in this song, we're just going to say we're making some space. Thanks, brother. Come on down here and join me. Anybody else that is saying, I'm, I'm going to make a little bit of room for Jesus today. I'm going to make some room for Jesus today. Start coming forward. The team's going to lead us in a beautiful song. I just don't want you to miss this moment. I don't, Listen, I don't care if there's two people or ten people or thirty people, it doesn't matter, that are, that are responding to the Lord today. I just don't want you to miss this moment. Don't miss the moment. I'm saying I'm making some room for Jesus and what he wants to do. So team, would you lead us as we conclude the service this morning?